Okay, we're in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, we started a new study last week in the book of Galatians. <coughs> and in Galatians, uh, we find a different Paul than we find anywhere else. Paul, of course, is the author. He's the apostle, Paul. And he's the author. And he's kind of got the war paint on and he's on a war path. He's not happy with what's happened and what he is defending is the gospel. The gospel is what he's defending. He wants it defended in its purest state and people are going around behind him and that's what created the book of Galatians. He founded the churches across Galatia. He was a missionary to the Greeks who lived in that area. And he led them to Christ, helped them to believe in Christ, to establish churches, put in leadership in those churches. And he had a whole group of churches in that uh, Asia minor, minor area. And then after he left, they sent in people behind him. And those people said, well, that Paul, he's okay, but he's not got all the information. He needs to know. We're going to fill in the blanks for you for what Paul doesn't know. And then they went on to say, well, there's a reason that he doesn't know it, because uh, he never saw Jesus. He never talked with the apostles. So how can you expect him to know all he needs to know? And so because he was limited that way, we're here to fill in the blanks and tell you what he's missing in his doctrine. Well, when he heard that, <laughs> he said, I'll tell you what, if they change the gospel, anybody, he says, if an angel comes down from heaven, and changes that gospel. Let him be anathema, or that is damned to hell. Let him be damned to hell. And so he's, he's after these people, and he's not happy. And so he has to, at this time, which he didn't do very often, almost never, but he had to defend himself. And he didn't really defend himself so much as simply told the story of how he came to know what he knows. And he told us in chapter 1 that he spent uh, three years, he met Christ on the road to Damascus. And he's struck with a light, he's turned blind, he's laying on the ground in the dust, and Jesus speaks to him. And so what do you do on he said, why are you after me? And he says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. And he says, tell me what you want me to do, which was a fantastically big step to make. I told you that Paul knew his Bible way better than you or I would. Way better. All right. And he knew the Old Testament, a lot of it even by heart. He was an expert in the Old Testament, except for <laughs> uh, he had interpreted it that you got to get rid of these new people, these Christ ones, or as we interpret the word Christians, get rid of these Christians. And so he went out to do that. That's when God knocked him down, said, you're going to work for me now. And so uh, he spent three years out in the wilderness in the Arabian desert learning. He said, I didn't learn from humans. I learned from God. And I went out there taking what I know, which was considerable, and then beginning to turn it into who Jesus was. Remember what Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill it. And that's a very important thing. Jesus came to fulfill the law and not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. Okay? And so... Uh, these people, and we give them the name Judaizers, you'll hear that word sometimes. Basically, these are people who went around and said, look, Paul's, the, the Jesus thing is okay, but uh, you've got to make sure you fill in all the right blanks. 
So there's things that you gotta do that we've been doing for thousands of years. You can't just throw them out, all right? And they had sort of a list of things that they did, all right? They said you have to add to the gospel. You gotta add something to it. And yet they were uh, things that they wanted to add <coughs> were things like, um, for example, uh, holy days, certain holy days. Foods, what they ate. Foods were very important to the Jews. And uh, uh, circumcision was very important to the Jews. And they said, you got to have that. You can't be saved unless you are circumcised. And so they were going around to all these Greeks who had never been circumcised, telling them, you, you're not saved unless you're circumcised. And so Paul went on, uh, on the war path, and he's telling them what's cooking. And he's not happy with what they have done. And so... Uh, they claimed that he was uninformed, and he was going to inform them. And things like, you could add here certainly Sabbath laws. And Sabbath laws were part of Jewish culture. What they're doing is they're taking Jewish culture, Jewish laws, saying we've got to add these to Jesus. And Paul says, no, you don't. That's not the way it's going to go. Now, in chapter 2, he's going to tell us two stories, two things that happened. And by telling these stories, which are historical in nature, he's helping us, uh, them, to see all right, why he did what he did. Now, when you read... Here in chapter 1, for example, verse 6, I marvel you are so re soon removed from him that called you to the grace of Christ to another gospel. I'm surprised at you, he said, that you have so quickly turned from what I taught you and embraced something else. He said, I'm surprised at that. Well, we talk about these people, we say they went around behind him and they visited each church and they tried to get the people over on their side. And they were successful in doing that. All right. So it sounds like, well, he's got to defend his reputation. Let me tell you, folks, what they did to him, was, what I've just said is nothing compared to what they did to him. They hounded him till the day he died. They followed him from town to town. And you go to the book of Acts and you'll read the story day after day after day, chapter after chapter, he goes to this town and they come behind him. Next town, they start a riot. Right? I mean, almost everywhere they were going, they were starting a riot over Paul. And they hounded him and hounded him till the day he died. They got together and formed a, a committee to kill him. <coughs> they went way, way, way overboard. All right? They had a group of them that swore they wouldn't eat until Paul was dead. And if it wasn't for the intervention of God in that particular case, he'd have died that day. All right? And things like he, he, he went over the wall in a basket because he's trying to get away from these people who are absolutely hounding him and hounding him. Now, he's a brilliant mind. I say one of the most brilliant of all times. And so he's perfectly capable of handling it, all right? But after a while, you get a little tired of it, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> and if you've never been hounded, well, I hope you never are. <clears throat> but uh, so people can be like that, and they really, really pushed him hard. They wanted to bring him down. They failed to do so. And God said that I've picked him to talk to kings. And eventually he would go all the way to Caesar and talk to Caesar as they're trying him for his life. And so he talked to a lot of kings along the way, important people, and eventually all the way to Caesar. And so uh, he 
wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. So while he's dealing with crazy people every day, hounding him day after day, he's writing the Bible on the side. <laughs> Don't tell me he hasn't got his brain together, all right? He's got his brain together. He's a remarkable fellow. So in chapter 2, he's going to explain now, because their accusation was, you don't even know the apostles. You hardly ever met them. So how can you claim to have the truth if you never even talked to them? And you weren't there when Jesus was teaching and preaching, and you didn't know the apostles. So how's it come all of a sudden you got all the answers? Well, he says, I got it by revelation, or God came and told me himself. And I gave you several examples of that last week. Now we come to chapter 2. He's going to give us two different events that happened that show uh, that what he taught was the same thing as the apostles. Here we go, chapter 2, verse 1. Fourteen years ago, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And so he's going for a meeting. We're going to uh, call it... Uh, it's basically a meeting, a conference, you might call it. He's at a conference in Jerusalem. And by the way, he says, I took Titus with me. And Titus, you know, there's a book in the Bible that Paul wrote to Titus. And Titus was a leader in the churches out on Crete, on the island of Crete. And he was a, a Greek. He said, I took him with me. That's going to be important. Verse 2. And I went up by revelation. All right. So God said, I want you to go to Jerusalem. All right. Nobody called him, said, get down here. We've got to talk. God said, I want you to go to Jerusalem now. And I want you to take care of things there. So he went up by revelation. God told me to go and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But privately to them who are of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Right, so he says, I talked to the leadership there. We had a conference, a meeting there, and I explained to them, here's what I've been teaching. This is what I've been teaching. I want to tell you exactly what I've been teaching. And what he's teaching is this, the gospel. We said, what was it? It's all about Jesus, that he was born, and that he lived, and that he died, and that he rose again. And then he ascended into heaven. It's the story of what Jesus did and how that affects us. That's the gospel, the good news that he's telling us. That's what gospel means, good news. And that's what I've been preaching, he says. And I said, I'm going to tell you what I've been doing just so you know what I've been saying. Make sure everything is okay. Verse 3, but neither... Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And so as he's talking to these people in Jerusalem, uh, he's got Titus with him. And they don't say, well, look, if that guy's going to be part of church, he's got to be circumcised. He's a Greek. They don't say that at all. They said, nobody tried to force that on me. That was not what they did. Verse 4, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. Into this conference, into this meeting, some people got in there and they were the enemies of Paul. And he says uh, at the conference they tried to spy on us. They were spying on us, see what we said, and they're going to stop uh, what we've been teaching and bring us into bondage and make us follow these rules. Right. And what does he say? Verse 5 to who? We gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might be continued with you. So he said, we didn't pay any attention to him. 
We didn't listen to what they said. They tried to jump in the conversation that I was having with the people there, the leadership, and uh, we did not allow it to come in. Verse 6, but of these who seemed to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. He said there were people who everybody said, well, that's an important person. He said, in my opinion, just another guy. <laughs> I like Paul. So he's just another guy. God doesn't respect persons. He said, God doesn't look down and say, wow, he's a fantastic guy. God just looks down and say, he's who I made him, and he's who I made him, and that's who they are. All right, God's not a respecter of persons. And he says, so when they came along and tried to change what we were saying, he said, we didn't pay attention. But there were leaders there, and he said, uh, they added nothing to me, but contrarywise, verse 7, when they saw the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed to me as the gospel of circumcision unto Peter, for that he wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. All right, so he said they saw that what I was preaching was the same thing as they were preaching, and that it was having the same effect on the people I was preaching to. Now, if you look over at Acts chapter 19, I'll show you an example of what he's just explained here. And he said, I was preaching the message of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, forgave our sins, and rose again for us. That's the message I was preaching. And the same thing happened when I preached as when Peter and John preached. Same thing. Acts chapter 19 and verse 4. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with a baptism of repentance, as John the Baptist, saying unto the people they should believe on him which should come after him, which is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about 12. And so Paul is preaching to a group of people. What happens? They do exactly the same thing as it happened in Acts chapter 2. They receive the Holy Ghost, comes on them, and they speak with other tongues. All right, and that was very much the way they did things back then. God did it that way. And the Bible tells us that they spoke with tongues that other people could understand. And so in the beginning, he said, you're going to speak with tongues. And on the day of Pentecost, the first time it happened, everybody heard the gospel in their own tongue. So if you were from Africa, if you were from Asia, if you were from Rome, wherever you were from, you heard in your own language the gospel preached. And that's what happened here when Paul preached the same message. And then we take a look down a little bit farther, and, uh, verse number 11. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. That's a pretty, pretty good thing. <laughs> he said, I got a handkerchief here. Here, Paul, touch this handkerchief, and I go over, and I give it to the guy, and he's healed. All right, I got an apron. All right. Take this, Paul, Paul blessed it, go over there, and these people get healed, demons get thrown out, which is what Peter and John were doing. They were going around healing people and casting out demons and all the rest. So he said, I preached exactly the same message, exactly the same thing happened. The Holy Spirit came on those people, and we had miracles, miraculous intervention of God, <clears throat> because we all were preaching the same message. There wasn't anything different about it. Now back to chapter 2, Galatians. 
Verse 9, when James and Cephas and John, who seem to be pillars, all right, James is the brother of Jesus, half-brother. Jesus' half-brother, and he became a leader in the church after Jesus was gone. Cephas is Peter, of course, and John is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelations. Okay? These three men were there in Jerusalem, and they were the leadership, Peter and John and James, the half-brother of Jesus, seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go on to the heathen and they to the circumcision. All right, so they said, you're doing fine. Continue your work. We shake hands with you. We're with you. Everything you said is fine. You got your gospel a different way than we did. You got yours by living in the desert for three years talking to God, but it's the same message. And so you go ahead and continue your work to the Gentiles and we'll talk to the Jews. Now if you go through the book of Acts, you'll find they talk to both. Peter talked to Gentiles and Peter talked to Jews. And you find Paul, every time he goes into town, he starts in a synagogue, talks to the Jews first. And then usually these renegade Jews would come after him, start a riot, and then he'd talk to the Gentiles. And so uh, he says, That's, we got the approval. So I had a conference with Peter and John and James, they shook my hand, said, you got it right. Your message is true and faithful. You got it right, and we're behind you. Now go ahead, no matter what these other people said, even though some of them at the conference tried to sneak in, he said, and get their bad message in. Uh, the leadership there said no. Verse 10, only that they sh- we should remember the poor, the same also which I was forward to do. And so they, before they left that conference, and you can read it in the book of Acts, the conference that they had, they said, what we want you to do is help the poor. And Paul did that probably more than anybody. Paul collected money all over Greece and all over the churches all through Asia and Europe. He collected money, sent it back to the Jews that were in Jerusalem. He's got nothing against the Jews. He's trying to help them. And so he's raising money. And the reason was, if you were in Jerusalem and you said, I believe in Jesus, well, they said, we're going to blackball you and you were out of business. Right? They, they shut down your business. So you couldn't feed your family. And it got really intense and those people were starving to death there right in Jerusalem. Couldn't make a living because everybody said you will not do business with these Christians. And so the Christians had to leave and they spread over into Asia Minor. All right, had to go. And they, the ones that stayed needed money, and Paul sent money back. So I don't want you to get the idea that Paul is anti-Jew. He's not. He's Jewish himself. He was raised with all those laws, which became more than just a religion. It became culture. If you were Jewish, you didn't do anything on the Sabbath day. And you never ate a pork sandwich. All right? You never did. And you were circumcised on the eighth day. And you kept the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Weeks and all the other feasts through the years. You kept all those feasts as part of your lifestyle and culture. And he's not against that. What his message is is look, when it comes to your sin and how we're going to take care of it, we're going to go right to this. Jesus died. He'll forgive you your sins. And you don't have to come and say, here, Lord, I did this right. I followed the rules, so you got to forgive me. No, but no. It's not how it works, he said. 
He never had to come to God and say, I'm trying to keep the rules, and so will you please forgive me? You just went and say, I'm sorry for my sin. He said, I forgive you, and that's how it's taken care of. And there's nothing you can do to purchase that. You can't say, this is mine. We sing, what, just as I am without one plea. I have nothing whereby I can claim to forgive, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's how I come. I say, Jesus died for me, shed his blood for me. And that's how I have forgiveness. Uh, Nothing in my hand I bring, right? Simply to thy cross I cling. I don't come to Jesus saying, I did real good now. And you say, well, that kind of went away after a while, didn't it? Oh, no, it didn't. It's been coming up for years. <laughs> it's still around. Believe me, it's still around. Where people say, well, if you do the right thing, you'll come out better. God will be more interested in you. It was very big in Martin Luther's time. When Martin Luther who began what we call the Protestant Reformation, uh, Lutheranism, when he was coming into his own, they were saying that your, your sins, uh, you can give us some money and we'll pay for them. They sold indulgences. The Catholic Church says, you give us a little money, we'll make sure you go to heaven. All right? And that's exactly what this was, the same kind of thing. Follow our rules. Here we will take care of your sin. And, and Paul says, no, it doesn't work like that. And Martin Luther said the same thing. We don't, you don't need to pay those guys one penny. You go to Jesus Christ, he forgives. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more as we go on. But then we have a second event. So the first event he mentions is the conference in Jerusalem, where all the apostles that were there, two of them, and if you call James an apostle, it would be three. All right, the rest of them are already spread out. Uh, but they were there, and they said, yeah, you, you got the same thing going on that we do. You're telling the same story. Even though you got it in the desert, it's the same story that we tell. So we give our approval. Verse 11. Here's the second event. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the faith because he was to be blamed. So now he's gone back to Antioch. And Antioch is where Paul came from. And if you have the uh, Mediterranean Sea and Jerusalem down here, up here in Asia Minor, just as you start there, there's a place called Antioch. And... uh, that was where Paul had went and found a church and Paul was working out of Antioch as his base and he was going to the other churches in Galatia and eventually over to Greece. <clears throat> and he says, so I was up in Antioch and Peter came up there. And he said, I withstood him right to the face. He said, he did something he shouldn't and I looked, stood him right up in front of everybody and said, Peter, you shouldn't have done that. Now that's pretty bold. Okay, Peter, everybody thought, well, he's the real thing. Okay, Peter's the guy. Him and Jesus, after all they'd been through, him and Jesus uh, were the ones. And he said, Peter came, I got after him. Here's why, verse 12. For before that, certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Or in other words, Peter's up here at Antioch at his dinner time, and he sits down with everybody, whoever they are at the table, and they're having pork or whatever is being served. And they're eating away and everybody's happy. Well, then a bunch of Jews come up out of Jerusalem. And, of course, they come in and say, well, we're not eating that stuff. We're eating what he's eating. And Peter says, well, 
Uh, I'm going to eat with you guys now. <laughs> and he comes over and he sits down away from all those Gentiles and their pork sandwiches. And now he's eating over here with, in a separate place with the Jews. And he says, as a matter of fact, pretty soon everybody is pulling away from our Greek friends that we've been eating with the whole time. And so I said to Peter, hey, you're not doing the right thing, Peter. You're pulling people away, they're dissembling, or they don't want to be a part. Because this Jewish tradition right here was Jewish foods, all right? That was their big deal. So that's, that's the way we have to live. If we're Jews, we can't be eating pork. Or there was more things than that, a lot more things. But they had lots of rules about what they ate. So verse 14. When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? So he's saying, before they came, you were eaten with all of us. Once they got here, you were afraid, and so you said, well, really, I guess the right thing to do is eat with these Jews. And he says, so you were eating with the Gentiles, but now you're telling the Gentiles you really should eat with the Jews. <laughs> and, and Paul said, no, no, you don't. I'm not going to allow that to happen. All right, verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, they said, we were born Jewish. Okay, these are natural things for us. We kind of live our culture that way. He said, we were born that way and not like the Gentiles that we were born eating whatever and doing whatever on different days and not being circumcised and not following all the holy days. 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now there's a word that we got to think about for a minute. It's an important word. And it is justified. Justified. And the simplest way to look at that word is just as if. If you're justified, it's been made just as if you never sinned. All right? How did you ever get to be just as if you never sinned? Well, what happened to your sin? You certainly did sin. That's right. And Jesus forgave it and said, it's gone. I pulled away from you. I'm going to forgive it so completely that I'll take it completely out of your life and you'll be just as if you never sinned by asking me for forgiveness. All right. So you've asked for forgiveness. You've got to ask for forgiveness. I remember there was a fellow once who said, well, you don't have to ask for forgiveness. God just gives it to you. I got to disagree with that. Right? You do have to ask for forgiveness. If, if God is going to give the forgiveness to anybody, then nobody's got to do anything, do they? That's not how that goes. You have to ask to be forgiven. But if you do, and you say, well, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And the answer is, oh, yeah. Matter of fact, I'll take your sin far away from you as I can get it. I'll make it just like you never even sinned. And we got different ways of saying it. He said, I'm going to bury it in the depths of the deepest sea. That's a long ways down. <laughs> You're never going to see it again. I'm going to separate it from you, he said, as far as the east is from the west. All right, so you go that way as far as you can, go that way as far as you can. How far is that? Is infinitely far. As far as the east is from the west, you go in infinite directions. Your sin is infinitely 
pulled away from you, it's as far away from you as it's made just as if you never sinned. By Jesus dying on the cross, he can do that because he paid for the sin. He paid the price. We're going to talk about that in a little bit more in just a minute. But that word justified comes up a lot. And remember, the easiest way is just as if we never sinned. Jesus Christ made it for us to be that way. Now, let's take a look here. Verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? All right, so we say, well, I'm asking God to forgive me and he removes my sin away from me as far as the east is from the west. And then what do you think? But I go do it again. I went and I did it again. So he says, is Jesus saying, go ahead and sin. Then all you want. There's a, there's a song in your book. It says, free from the law, oh happy condition. Jesus has bled and there is a remission. And there was a famous preacher, he changed it. He says, free from the law, oh happy condition, now I can sin without intermission. <laughs> okay, that's not how it goes, okay? All right, and that's what he's saying here. He says, if you say you're justified by sin and then you do something wrong again, then you're saying that Jesus allows me to sin whenever I want. That's not what it's about, and we'll explain why in a minute. All right, but that's not what it's about. All right, we're here. Uh, he, he, didn't, he didn't approve of sin. All right, verse 17 again. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, or we did it again, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? Is Jesus saying, I approve of that? God forbid. No, he's not approving of it. All right, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So I started out saying, I'm going to believe in Jesus' blood to forgive me. Now, if all of a sudden I'm going to pull back from that and say, well, I better make sure by following these rules here and get, make sure everybody's circumcised and followed all the food laws. Let's do all those rules, then I'll be all right. He said, no, no, I can't go back on that. Verse 19, for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. All right. Now let's see if we can figure this out. There's... Two things that we got to figure out about this gospel. How does it work? How does it fulfill the law? Right, so, what is the law? Well, it's that Old Testament thing that Moses brought down off the mountain. And to try and describe what it was like, he said it's like. There's a bullhorn, right? A bullhorn. You go say it out real loud. And the law said, "Thou shalt not." Right? So the law said, "You can't do this. You're not allowed to do this. You will not do this." Right? And then what do you think? We did it. He did it. Go through the Ten Commandments. See how many of them you've, you've uh, crossed. All right? Thou shalt not lie. Whoops. Thou shalt not steal. Whoops. Got us there. Shall not commit adultery. Goes on and on. He's got a lot of things there. <laughs> and the law cries out, You shall not do this, and therefore, because you did, you are guilty. And the law is this big megaphone that's crying out, guilty, guilty, guilty. You're guilty. You'll make sure you get it. You're guilty. 
You did what God said not to. You're guilty. And he said that's really what the law was for, to make sure we knew what we weren't supposed to do. And so it goes on beyond that, this old law, because there's an, an old rule. He said the soul that sins, it shall die. So now we got the law saying, thou shalt not, but you did. You're guilty, guilty, guilty. And it's this loud voice. You're guilty. And by the way, the soul that sins, it shall die. Now how are you feeling? <laughs> kind of keep, oh man, this is getting bad. It's getting bad. And the soul that sins and dies will go to hell. So that's the message that's coming off the mountain from Moses. He comes down with these two tablets in his arm, carved by the very finger of God, thou shalt not. So here's what rules that God made right up there on the mountain. I'm bringing them down to you, and the smoke and fire is pouring off the mountain, and there's lightning and thunder. Here I come with God's law. And they read it, and they go, guilty. That's right, it says you're guilty. Guilty, louder and louder and louder. And that's the voice of the law hollering out, you are guilty. All right? Now, Jesus died on the cross. Came over, he died on that cross. And as he's being nailed to the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. And they're nailing his hands. As they're driving nails into his hands, he says, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'm coming here so that you'll forgive them. All right? And the Bible, and one of the hymns in our books, says, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. What? Forgive them. Oh, forgive, they cry, or let that ransom sinner die. All right, so that the voice now coming from the cross, that's a loud voice coming from the cross, says, forgive. Forgive them. Forgive them. Oh, forgive, they cry, or let that ransom sinner die. Right. So, we've sinned, and the gospel message is hanging on a cross, forgive them, forgive them. So we have this voice, this other voice, guilty, guilty, guilty. Now coming from the cross is a new voice, forgive, 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 forgive. I want to forgive. How much? Just as if, what? They never sinned. Let's forgive them that much. Make it like they never sinned. All right? So let's forgive and forget, actually, part of the message, forget. And God says, as for your sins, I will remember them no more. That's the happiest thing I ever heard. I never heard anything happier than that. How wonderful to know that the things that are in my mind that I didn't forget, that God said, I'm going to forget them. Like you didn't do them. So it's a whole new voice coming from the cross, and that's the gospel message coming from the cross and saying, forgive, forgive. As on the other hand, guilty, guilty. Now, he dies on the cross, paid the ransom, we say. He paid for our sins. But then he rose again. He comes back from the dead. Now up here, you're guilty and the soul that sins, it's going to die. Over there, you're forgiven and new life. 
Not you're going to die. Not you're going to die. It's new life is going to come into you. All right? And so this gospel message, what Jesus did, is I'll forgive and forget. And then as far as that's concerned, I'm raising you from the dead. I'm bringing you back to life. I'm giving you life. And I'm going to ascend up on high. All right? And there it's going to be up in heaven. And then I'll prepare a place for you. And so the gospel message is not guilty. You were told and you disobey and you're guilty. You're going to die and go to hell. Jesus' message is I'll forgive. I'll forget. I'll separate your sins from you. I paid for them. And now I rose from the dead and I reverse what was against you, which was a soul that sinneth it shall die, I'm going to give you life and where? Take you to heaven, not to hell. That's a whole lot better message than was coming out of this. All right? That's a whole lot better message. And Paul said, don't you mess with that message. Don't you try to add anything to that message. It doesn't need it. You don't need any of that. All right? You need this gospel. This huge forgiving spirit, we call it grace. A lot of times it's called grace, the message of grace, or God giving to us something we don't deserve. That's a pretty good definition for grace. So you don't deserve this, but I'm giving it to you. I'm going to bring life to you and reverse what was happening. Now, one of the things that I think is most interesting, I'm going to give you this just for fun, okay? Um, one of the things I think is most interesting is that Jesus said, and remember we showed you this last week, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. All right? So, the law, this yelling out, you're guilty, guilty, and you're going to die, that needed to be, something needed to be done with it. And so, God gave to Moses on the mountain some things that he was going to do. He said to Moses, I want you to go down and... uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to have you build a tabernacle. And then we're going to choose a line of people, priests, and in particular one of them is going to be the high priest. And once a year on a day of atonement, He's going to go into the Holy of Holies. He's going to pay for your sins with the blood of an animal. And so you're going to take the blood of an ox, the blood of a lamb, into that holy place. Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And you're going to spread it on there. And it's going to be what you have to work with to get over this guilt and sin. So I'm going to give you this thing. Number one, it's going to have to be temporary. It's going to have to be temporary. It's going to be for a while. But It is flawed. There's flaws in it. And the flaws are going to be kind of obvious. So he said, let's go over the flaws. You're going to build a tabernacle. What is a tent? All right. And you got any old tents in your attic somewhere that you used to use and don't anymore? We had one. My wife hit it with a lawnmower. I was glad, you know. Get rid of that thing. I'm done with that tent. 
Right. So, God says we're going to make a tent. The very nature of a tent is what? Not permanent. All right. It was something that they move around from here to there and hither and yon. And after <laughs> several hundred years, it's kind of worn out and used up, worn out. All right. It just was made with hands. Human hands made it. It was made by hands. It was a tent. Now eventually, God told Solomon, you can make a permanent structure. We're going to do away with a tent. That's kind of run its course. You're going to build a temple. And so on Mount Zion, Solomon built a very, very beautiful temple. And there's the temple of God. And now we got a permanent place, right? Well, Nebuchadnezzar proved that that wasn't true. He burned it to the ground. Nebuchadnezzar came in when he took over Jerusalem and they turned that into nothing but ashes. There's a few stones here and there and that's all that's left. They destroyed everything. Right? So we follow our Bible from Nebuchadnezzar and we go up and uh, 70 years after the captivity begins and God says to Ezra and to Zerubbabel, you guys go back and build the temple again. And so they went back and they started building a temple, the second one. And when they laid the foundation, said the old man started crying. And they said, what are you crying about? It doesn't look like it's going to be like the first one. It looks kind of flawed. And that was the second one. And that one didn't go far. And then along came King Herod of all people. <laughs> Is the guy that tried to kill Jesus, okay? King Herod uh, did a 43-year rebuild of the temple, and he made it one of the most famous buildings in the world. And it was a fabulously beautiful place, 27 acres it covered. That's a big enclosure, okay? And he's got all sorts of buildings, and he's covered it with gold and silver and all kinds of things. And people would walk in and say, wow, look at this. Pretty good, huh? Pretty good, huh? And you say, well, there, right? There is at its zenith. Well, no, no. Forty years after Christ, Titus, the Roman general, came in and he poured pig oil all over the place and stuck up a pig right in the middle of it and he destroyed that temple too. Right? So, so the temple was temporary, but made by hands. It can always be destroyed. It was made by hands. The second thing, you had a high priest. Right? So the high priest is going to go in on the Day of Atonement, once a year, he's going to offer for your sins. And so, he would have a job he got to do first. First, he's got to go and take the lamb, and he'll take a lamb, and this is how they sacrificed these lambs. You, you went up to the lamb, and you put your hands on the lamb's head, and you said, here's why how I sinned. This is what I did wrong. And you confessed your sins over the, the lamb, head of the lamb. And then you yourself took a knife and you slit his throat. You know, you get the blood. And the priest is going to be there with a bowl. And as the lamb is bleeding out through his throat, they're catching the blood. Now the problem is the priest, he's got to go into the Holy of Holies is in the tabernacle one day a year, but he can't just go in there. He's got to atone for his own sin first. And so he kills the lamb, confesses his sins, goes in with the blood and sprinkles it. By the way, in case he didn't mean it, in case he lied, 
Casey really wasn't sorry for his sins. They tied a rope on his leg. And he had bells on the bottom of his thing. And if he went in there and he was faking it, and God killed him. And they'd hear the bell stop and they'd pull him out. That didn't work so good, see. <laughs> the problem was the priest was a sinner. So he'd go in and atone for his own sins and hopefully he made it back out. And then he'd cut another lamb and go in and atone for the sins of the people. And so the priest was flawed because he was a sinner. And he was going in for sinners, but he was one of them. So that's another flaw in the system. And the last thing is the blood of animals. All right, it's the blood of animals. So we have a very flawed system. It's the best they had, but it was flawed because the tabernacle is built with human hands and the high priest was a sinner himself and the blood they're using is a blood of a lamb or a bull or whatever it is that they use, usually a lamb, and they go in and they're going to sprinkle that blood in the holy place and they say, well, uh, they're God. That's what we can do. That's the best we can do. And he says, well, I know. The best you can do. All right? It's kind of a flawed system, temporary. Now, along, and how bad does it get? <coughs> Here's how bad it got. By the time Jesus comes to this temple and this system, the tabernacle or the temple that was there uh, that Jesus went into, you know what he called it? It's says a den of thieves. It ain't no holy place anymore. It's a den of thieves. Your place that you made and you spent 43 years building and you got every beautiful thing. It's a den of thieves. They're stealing from people. That's not the way I intended it. And the high priest is named Caiaphas. Who leads the trial of Jesus and says, We gotta kill him. He needs to be killed. And he finishes with these words. He says, uh, <clears throat> We gotta kill him to save us. So kill him. Kill him. All right? And so that, how's, how's it? By the time Jesus gets there, it's a mess. It's a mess. It's a den of thieves and the high priest, he's a, he's a filthy, stinking liar. And he's a terrible man. So that system is extremely flawed. Now, Jesus comes, all right, and it says he brings his own blood. So finally, we have human sin paid for with human blood. Not the blood of an animal, but with human blood. All right? Now, where's the priest? Well, the Bible says Jesus was the high priest. Not after the order of Aaron, which was the high priest and his family through generations and generations. He's not of that group. Because they were all sinners and high priests. He came along and he was not a sinner. The first ever to not be a sinner. And he brings with him human blood. All right? So we have human sin finally for the first time to be paid for with human blood. Okay, and then who is he? He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
That is, we don't know where he came from, and we don't know who he is, but he was anointed by God to be high priest. And Jesus said, where did he come from? From eternity. All right? He was the priest that came out of eternity. We don't know where he, he didn't start. For all that is, he's a high priest. So finally the high priest is not a sinner. And finally he comes with human blood. So what does he do? He dies on the cross, sheds his blood. Now it's the job of the priest to take it to the Holy of Holies. But that place is no good. Made by human hands. So what does he do? He said, I'm taking this, and he dies on the cross, and he takes his sacrifice, and he goes right by the temple. Matter of fact, on the way, he ripped the curtain. All right, there's a temple. In the temple, there's a big heavy curtain so thick that two teams of oxen couldn't pull it apart. And on his way by, he just took it from the top and went, ripped it right in half. He said, we won't be needing that place anymore. I'm taking this to a place made without hands. And he took it up to heaven. And he takes his bleeding sacrifice up to heaven, comes to the doors of heaven, lift up your heads, O ye gates, be lifted up, ye everlasting door, and a king of glory shall come in. And he comes in to the Father's throne room, and now he's in the real holy of holies. And it isn't built with hands. It's not a temporary place. It's a permanent place. And he cuts up to the Father's throne, presents the token of his redemption, five bleeding wounds. And he says, I have finished the work you gave me to do. And the Father says, sit down on my right hand and reign until I make your enemies your footstool. It was finally right. They finally got rid of the temporary and made it permanent. They went to a high priest who wasn't a sinner. They went not to the tabernacle made by hands, but he took a sacrifice up to heaven, and it wasn't the blood of a lamb or a goat or a bull. We got a song in our hymn books. Not all the blood of lambs and bulls on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. That didn't work. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of thine. Like a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. So I'm going to do is confess my sin over that bloody lamb. And what happens? Believing we rejoice, see the curse removed. And bless the lamb with cheerful voice. Sing his bleeding love. That's one of the great hymns in your hymn book. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away. Sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Believing we rejoice to see the curse removed. We bless the lamb with cheerful voice. Sing his bleeding love. That's how he fulfilled all this. Because all this was flawed and temporary. And now Paul says, don't you dare try to change that. You leave it just the way it is. You leave it just the way it's been done. He doesn't need your help. All right? He took care of everything. He can make it just as if you never sinned. And then he's going to raise you back to dead from the dead. Verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. So I did die, but I died with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. He rose from the dead, and now I'm alive. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is... Not only did he raise us from the dead, but he filled us with power to live. 
to live the way we should. All right? That's where we get the power to live the Christian life the way it's supposed to be lived. We get it from that sacrifice, that cross, that payment, and that ride up to heaven where he took it up to the most high God and he didn't have to sacrifice for himself, but he did for all of us. So when Paul says, I'm defending this, you better believe he's defending it. He said, you don't need somebody to come along and say, well, you ate that pork and we just can't have that. Get away from me, he said. Get out of here. I don't want to hear that. Well, that Titus, you know, he should be circumcised. He doesn't need it. He's under that forgiving voice that cries out, forgive them. Oh, forgive, they cry, and let that ransom sinner die. And so the law was a voice screaming out, guilty, guilty. And then a voice is heard from Calvary saying, forgive, forgive. And Paul says, I'm here to defend that gospel. That's what you need. All right? It's very powerful. Very powerful what Paul is saying. I was going to go on to explain it more and more as we go along. Open up to us some tremendous doors where the power of the resurrection comes into our lives and we have something that's truly wonderful. Next week, continue on Galatians chapter 3. Thank you.